Hey, before you're seated, turn to two or three people and say, go Chiefs, especially if they're wearing a Bengals jersey. Listen, man, my wife, who doesn't talk much trash or engage deep in kind of the, the grit of the sport, uh, at some point this week, I think it was either Friday or yesterday, said, Christian, we have to win tomorrow because the Bengals are jerks. Um, because you live in Kansas City, you know what she means by that. My mom, a 70-year-old mother, God bless her, who was watching my 8.30 a.m. service, who lived in southern Ohio most of her life where I was raised as a Bengals fan, as I was raised, texted me and said, good sermon, but why are the Bengals jerks? Um, so I don't have time to explain it to you, but if you lived in Kansas City, you know, right? Like we, like we know what Daniel's saying, and it's time to take their yap this afternoon, and Lord willing, <laughs> shut it once and for all. Amen. Amen. All right. We're glad you came today. Let's pray and then we'll go home and watch a game. Lord, I'm just kidding. We're not done. Um, Hey, you heard, uh, you heard Christian Gracia mention um, this Wednesday night. I want to invite you to join us February 1 for our first Wednesday of what we're calling fasting and prayer. Hundreds of people prayed with us all week long. We will begin the first Wednesday of every month kind of setting aside that day for that month to really just lean into who Jesus is. If you weren't here yesterday morning, you might not know a lot about fasting. Jamie, could we send out yesterday's devotional in an email so people can kind of get a hold of that? So we'll send that out to you um, some, at some point tomorrow. But from 7.25 a.m. sunrise to 5.39 p.m. some sunset, we're asking our church to fast, to create an awareness for what you need from God in February and to lean in all day in prayer. 6.30 to 7.30, we'll pray and then we'll be done. We'd love for you to join us for that here or online if you can make it. Two weeks from today, we are back in the book of Matthew. Um, we will finish Matthew on September 17th of this year, three years after we started our study in Matthew, nearly 120 messages in the gospel of Matthew. But we plug in where we left off, right in Matthew chapter 19 on February 12th in a series called Broken People, Sexuality, Marriage, and the Gospel of Grace. In Matthew 19, Jesus is asked a question about marriage and divorce and about marriages falling apart, and Jesus responds by saying something like this. Um, it wasn't ever supposed to happen that way. But because of sin, people have hard hearts, and people are broken, and sexuality is broken, and marriage is broken because sin has broken us. Spend about eight weeks working through that text in Matthew chapter 19. In the middle of that will be our marriage conference. That'll be kind of the primary content that we give for marriage. We'll work around a lot of other issues at seven or eight weeks. So uh, be sure to be here in February or tune in. Going to learn a lot of valuable things, I think, about the life and uh, teaching of Jesus for his followers. But today we're in week four of a series that we're calling Thrive. It's just a study in John chapter 15 that's trying to teach us how to have life and life to the fullest. Jesus said in John 10, 10, I've come that you might have life and that you might survive spiritually. No, he didn't say that. Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and have it to the fullest. You don't need as followers of Jesus to just survive every day, every week, every month, every year. You should be thriving. He's telling us in John chapter 15 how to have a thriving relationship with him, with God through him. That's what we've been studying today. We're going to pick up in John 15. We're going to be in verses 13 through 17. And here's what we're going to learn. Jesus says, greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. 
I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends for everything that I learned from my father, I made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last and so that whatever you ask in my name, the father will give you. This is my command, love each other. We've said every week in the book of uh, John, in John chapter 15, that before we teach through any text, we have to teach to the text, because that's where we're reminded that this is part of a conversation that started in the upper room with Jesus, that ended when he was arrested in Gethsemane, and it was a conversation that the content had one main theme, how to live close to Jesus while he's in heaven and you're on earth until he comes back to earth or you go to heaven. That's the content of the conversation. Jesus told his disciples in John 13, I'm going to the Father to get a place ready for you. You'll either come to me or I'll come back to you. But in the meantime, we need to stay close so you can experience life like I want you to experience life. So we're in the middle of this conversation trying to figure out how do we live very close to Jesus? How do we thrive spiritually in a moment-by-moment relationship with Jesus when he is in the heavenly realm and we are here? And we've learned some incredible things about how to do that. Uh, Kind of the center of this series is this little thrive graphic that we put together and put in your bulletin every week. We've said in John 15, Jesus is going to give us five main arteries that our heart is going to beat in spiritually. And if these arteries are alive, our life will thrive spiritually. If these arteries get hard, we're going to have a spiritual heart attack. Or to say it another way, our heart is going to get hard. We've said these are the areas that if we intentionally lean into daily time with God, prayer and fasting, spiritual community, generosity, serving others, if we intentionally keep these arteries open, no matter what's happening in life, Jesus is going to influence how we experience everything. But if we do not keep these arteries open, our life experiences are going to keep us from doing these five things, and very slowly our heart for Jesus is going to shrink, and then it's going to get really, really hard. So the question we've been asking is when you look at 2022, did Jesus influence how you experience life, or did what you experience in life influence how you see Jesus? The goal is that Jesus would um, influence how we experience life. Uh, We've talked about how daily time with God is important. We've talked about prayer and fasting. That was last week. We've talked about living in spiritual community. Today, we talk about how serving others helps us thrive spiritually. I want you to look at this text again now through that lens, through the lens of serving others. What does Jesus say to us about how living for other people helps us thrive? Verse 13, greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You were my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant doesn't know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends for everything that I learned from my father. I've made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And so whatever you ask in my name, the father will give you this is my command. Love each other. We're only going to really learn two things today. We're going to fit this text into kind of two chunks of learning. The first is this. We're going to learn our spiritual position as followers of Jesus. Jesus says you will always live in this position or this posture to the world. What is our spiritual position? Here's what Christians look like, verse 13. Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. Now, because we know the rest of the story we probably misunderstand what Jesus is saying. Because Jesus is not saying Christians all die for each other. It's not what he's saying at all, actually. As a matter of fact, if you're taking notes, I'd say this. While we're not commanded to love each other to the degree that Jesus loved us. 
He gave his life for us. I would say, indeed, we cannot love each other to the degree that Jesus loved us because we cannot give our life for another person to make them right with God. While we cannot... Uh, while we're not commanded to love each other to the degree that Jesus loved us, we are commanded to love each other with the heart that Jesus loved us with. And this phrase is going to teach us something about that. Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for his friends. Now, if you are over the age of 36 or 37, the primary way you communicated to people that you were dating with in middle school and high school was on the telephone, right? Like talking on the telephone to people. Or is it only like plus 40 now? If you're under 35, for sure, the primary way you communicated was probably not electronically. But there's a generation of us older folks, I'll be 45 on Saturday, um, who grew up talking on the phone. And for those of us who were a little dramatic um, and maybe a little emotionally immature or sensitive, sometimes we would even fall asleep on the phone because that meant you really were in love with someone. And I personally didn't do this, but I heard about people who like, you know, maybe around eighth grade, ninth grade, when their heart was really kind of attached to someone, they'd start telling the person that they loved them. And their phone calls might end up like this, hey, I got to go, I love you. And they'd say, no, I love you. And they'd say, oh, I love you more. Say, oh, I love you more. Oh, I love you the most. No, I love you like the most, most, most. Now, that didn't happen to me, but I had two sisters. So I've like heard about stuff like that. Um, and even now, just talking about it makes you want to puke. But it was a thing. Like it was a thing trying to convince people I love you more. Um, what's funny is the Apostle Peter is one of the I love you more type guys. As a matter of fact, um, Jesus in John chapter 10, verse 11, 15, and 17 would use this phrase. He said, I'm the good shepherd. I'm going to lay down my life for you. And Peter was like, but I love you more, and I'm going to lay down my life for you. And Jesus was like, oh, that's real cute, Peter. Um, but, like, that's not going to happen. Look at John chapter 13. After Jesus three times says, I'm going to lay down my life for you. I'm going to show you how much I love you by laying down my life for you. Peter tries to say, I love you more. In John 13, Jesus is telling the disciples, I'm going to the Father. You can't follow me there, but I'll come back. And in verse 37, Peter said, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. I love you more. Jesus answered, bless your heart. <laughs> will you really lay down your life for me, Peter? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you're going to disown me three times. Like, Peter, that's really sweet to say the same thing that I said to you, but you cannot love me to the degree that I love you. And tonight when you try, you're going to look really, really silly, but I'm going to love you anyway. Now, here's what's crazy in the exact same conversation. So like in John 13, 37, 38, Jesus is like, you can't lay down your life for me. But then just like a couple minutes later in the exact same conversation in John 15, 13, Jesus is like, if you really love people, you got to lay down your life for them. It's like, well, can we, or can't we? Or does it mean something different? Is there any context that tells us what this phrase, lay down your life for people, means? The answer is yes, and we find it in John chapter 13. Jesus enters the upper room with his disciples, and he begins to talk to them about their heart for each other and for followers of Jesus in the world. It says in John 13, verses 1 through 5, and then 12 through 17, it was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. 
Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Skip down to verse 12. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you, he asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that's what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. So what is our spiritual position? It's very, very clear. We are servants of God to the people of God. Jesus said, here is your spiritual position. Here is what a follower of Jesus is going to look like. You are going to serve God by serving his people. I'm the rabbi. I'm the teacher. I'm the master. I don't even really have to do that, but I'm going to show you what it looks like. Here's the spiritual position that Jesus followers have. You're going to serve God by serving the people of God. Look at verses 16 and 17. He cannot make it much clearer. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than the master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. If you are a servant of God to the people of God, you will be blessed. But let me give you a question that comes with an assumption for people who maybe have read the Bible. The question would be this. You don't have to shake your head yes or no if it would make you uncomfortable. Are you a follower of Jesus? The question would be, are you a follower of Jesus? If the answer is yes, the assumption is, oh, then you serve God by serving the people of God. Are you a follower of Jesus? Yeah. Oh, okay. Don't know everything about you, but I do know something. If you're a follower of Jesus, you serve God by serving the people of God because that's what the Bible says followers of Jesus do. As a matter of fact, there's nothing between Matthew 1.1 and Revelation 22.21 that says you can be a follower of Jesus without serving the people of God. There's no such thing as biblical Christianity where people do not serve one another. It's just not part of the Bible. So Jesus says your spiritual position is not just do you serve God, but you serve God by serving his people. Years ago in the church world, a pastor came up with a pretty creative phrase to talk about how Christians loved and served the world. And he used this little phrase at his conference, saved people serve people. Saved people serve people. But by that, he meant the church serves its community. The church serves the world. The church does community impact. The church does, church does global missions. And they do all of those things. But what Jesus is saying is saved people serve other saved people. Christians love one another. Christians serve one another. Saved people serve other saved people. You're like, well, I just like save, serving the world. I, I don't really want to serve other Christians. I just want to serve hurting people. You know, Jesus had one disciple who had that heart. His name was Judas Iscariot. And when he saw Jesus having kind of a spiritual small group moment celebrating worship in spiritual community, he's like, hey, can't we serve the poor instead? Like, do we always have to be like living in spiritual community, serving one another? And Jesus is like, yeah, yeah, we do. Like, yeah, we do both. We do both. That's kind of how it works. So are you a Christian? Yeah. Oh, so don't know everything about you. I do know this. If you're a follower of Jesus... I know that you serve God by serving the people of God because that's 
the Christian's spiritual position. But we don't just see spiritual position. Number two, we're going to see our spiritual purpose. In verses 14 through 16, we're going to see why saved people serve other saved people. Jesus says in John 14, you're my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I've made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you. And I appointed you that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And so that whatever you ask in my name, the father will give you. So listen, the reality of followers of Jesus is that followers of Jesus serve the mission of Jesus and the people of Jesus. That, like that's what followers of Jesus do. We figure out what's the mission of Jesus and we serve the mission of Jesus and we serve like the people of Jesus. That's what followers of Jesus do. However, what Jesus has just said is far more profound than like, hey, you should serve at church. I would say it this way on your notes. The reality of what Jesus has invited us to do is far more important than the role he asks us to fulfill. What Jesus just said in verses 14, 15, and 16 far outweighs who you will serve and how you will ever serve. What he just said honestly is a groundbreaking moment in the global history of faith. You say, why? Because he said a word that we're all familiar with. As a matter of fact, we've got a little culture and context for, for this world, uh, for this word in, in our world. I don't know if you, if you know this, um, but it appears that the 90s are making a comeback. Um, not only in how people dress, um, but literally every show that was on TV in the 90s is now on TV again with just older people trying to do the same stuff. It's a really weird phenomenon, but it's like, I watched all these things as a kid, and now they're all back again. Um, probably the greatest cultural icon of the 90s is the word friends. Because in 1994, these six singles that lived in New York City, Ross and his sister Monica, Rachel, her friend Joey, Phoebe and Chandler, like lived together in these offices. But it was pretty impressive, right? I didn't watch it a lot, but my sister has watched every episode 114 times. Like she's like the binge watcher of the friends. Um, she's gone to like Central Perk Cafe and taken pictures of herself. Like that's her thing. Um, these friends captured the heart of the world in 1994. They had a 10-season run. Think about this. A 10-season run that averaged nearly 25 million viewers per episode for 10 years. Crazy. Because everyone wanted to watch these friends live life. Listen, before Friends was a sitcom that the whole world was watching in the 90s, and then again in the 2020s because everything's coming back around. Before it was a sitcom, it was one of the most important and weighty spiritual words in all of the Bible. Jesus just told his disciples, I don't call you servants, I call you friends. You know the only Bible that the disciples had was Genesis 1 through the end of the book of Malachi, and do you know that in the Hebrew Bible, only Abraham and Moses were referred to as friends of God? Only two people in the history of the spiritual world that are called friends of God. And now Jesus says to his disciples, we're going to be friends. They had to be freaking out. Like, what? Like Abraham? Like Moses? Like, there's a bunch of heroes in the Old Testament who aren't called friends. You want us to be friends like God was friends with Abraham and Moses? Yep, that's a, that's a thought. That's a concept. Friends. You ever been friends with someone really, really important, more important than you? Man, it can make you, like, it can make your heart beat a little faster. I had a, uh, 
a really encouraging and humbling experience years ago. Um, I went to Liberty University in Lynchburg, Virginia, played football there, and then um, became a youth pastor out of there. And every year, a lot of times when I was a student ministry, Danielle and I would, would go back and take kids to Liberty and go see old friends and professors and people that we had done ministry with. And every year we went back, the chancellor of the university who had done our wedding and who loved football and who knew us a little bit, every time I went back, he would try to hire me. Christian, you need to quit your job. You need to come work for us. You need to lead our student ministry department. You need to lead our student ministry. Like literally every time I went back, what will it take? We want to hire you. Um, one of the times I went back, this guy had a, a Sunday morning um, television ministry. For those of you who maybe didn't grow up around the church world, like in the 80s and 90s, uh, watching church on TV was kind of a much bigger deal then than it is now. Um, you had D. James Kennedy at Coral Ridge down in Florida. You had Schuler out in California. You had Charles Stanley in Atlanta. Um, you had this guy in Lynchburg, Virginia. Like millions of people would watch church on TV before they would go to their own local church. He had one of these big television church audiences. Their church service was as much a television program as it was a church service. I mean, lights, camera, action, everything would come on. And one of the times he was trying to recruit me to come work for him, he said, uh, he said hey, I want you this Sunday during our old-time gospel hour, I want you to walk out on the stage with me. I'm going to have you sit with me on the stage during my message, and I'm going to introduce you to the nations so that they know who you are and how much I think of you. It's like, wow, that is incredible. I must be incredible. You know how you think in your 20s, it's like... I probably deserve this. Thank you. Um, so, you know, the Sunday comes. I walk out on the stage with him. I'm sitting there during worship. He's patting my leg with the Bible. And I, I'm like, I am a, I'm a really big deal because I'm friends with a guy who's a really big deal. Um, they go through the first part of the service. And then, like, the, the, it comes on live, like, literally nationally. And he's going to have me pray for the offering nationally. So he goes up and, you know, gives the offering appeal. And he says, I want to introduce you to a great young pastor from Kansas City, blah, blah, blah. He played quarterback at Liberty. And he says, Christian Newman, come on up, son. And I thought, oh, man, he don't even know my name. Like, I thought we were, I, like, I thought we were, I thought we were boys. And he forgot my name. And now if I ever do anything good in life, the world is going to Google someone else because they don't even know my name either. And it was like this soul crushing moment of humility. That's like, I am like less than nothing. Jesus says to his disciples, we're friends. They had to be flipping out. Like the God of the universe and human flesh had just said, we're friends. They heard of the concept because Abraham was called a friend of God. And Moses talked to God face to face like friends would talk to each other. But here, here now, God in flesh was saying, like, we're friends. What do we know about God's friends and his special call on their life? Well, we meet two of his friends in Genesis chapter 12 and Exodus chapter 33. We realize that God chose friends who could help him love and serve and reach the world. In Genesis chapter 12, we hear after the flood in verses 1 through 3 that God looked down and he found a friend named Abram. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country, your people, your father's household to the land I'll show you. I'm going to make you into a great nation and I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. God said, I've got this massive heart for the world and I want to reach and love and serve people and you are going to be my friend that helps make that possible. Just a guy. 
600 years later, this guy and his extended family had grown into more than a million people. 400 years, they'd been enslaved in Egypt. God rescues them from Egypt with 10 plagues. They find themselves out in the middle of the desert, and they're trying to figure out once again, why does God love us? And God chooses another friend named Moses, who after the people of Israel had made a God, they could see, touch, feel, know that was at their side, a golden calf that God had come down and destroyed. Moses said, man, like, we just got to know who you are and why you chose us and why you love us and what are we supposed to do for you? Moses said, please, tell me who you are. And in Exodus thirty-three nineteen, the Lord said, I'm going to cause my goodness to pass in front of you, Moses. I'm going to proclaim my name, the Lord in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I'll have mercy. I'm going to have compassion on whom I have compassion. What did it mean spiritually to be a friend of God to these young Hebrew boys having a Passover meal with Jesus? Here's what it meant. Abraham and Moses were the carriers of the promises of God and the covenants of God. Abraham and Moses were picked out of a global population to know the heart of God and the plan of God so they could tell the people of God. They were taught the heart of God and the plan of God so they could do the work of God. Abraham and Moses were insiders. They were friends with the God of the universe. And listen, please understand this, the reality that you have been added to that group, friends of God, the reality that you are aware of God and his plan and his heart for the world, the reality that you have been invited not just into friendship but into mission with God is a tremendous, tremendous weight and responsibility for us. Not only have we been given insight into who God is, we've been told we can have impact in what God is doing because he's given us a certain role. Look back at John fifteen sixteen. Jesus said, you did not choose me, but I chose you, and I appointed you. I want to talk to you about the words appointed you, but I can't really start there. I have to start with the reality of the words on the screen that very honestly make a whole lot of sense to those of us who know anything about the Old Testament. You didn't chose, choose me, I chose you. When we think about Abraham and Moses, the friends of God, it's like, yeah, of course, we don't read that Abraham was looking for God. We actually read that Abraham and his family worshiped foreign gods, but God kind of found him and, and like picked him out of his family and said, like, you and I, boy, are going to be close, and I'm going to touch the world through you. Abraham didn't choose God. God chose him, and he appointed him to, have, to bless the world. Later, Moses. We, we don't read that Moses was going around to all the bushes in the wilderness trying to figure out which ones might catch fire without burning up. He was not even aware of what was going on. And all of a sudden, God steps into his world in a bush that's burning, and God chooses Moses. Moses isn't even looking for him, but God's looking for him. And he chooses Moses and appoints him to go free his people from Egypt. Like, this verse is very easy for us to understand through the lens of Abraham and Moses. Of course, God chose them. They didn't choose him. Of course, God gave them their roles. They didn't come to God and say, hey, really thinking about freeing the people of Egypt. Could you help me with that? Like, like God chose them and appointed them, not vice versa. But sometimes it's hard in Christianity for us to believe this about ourselves or the world who doesn't know who Jesus is yet. So we got to lay a little bit of a basic foundation of what in scripture is called the doctrine of election. We have to understand how God works and when God works. 
I'm not going to teach deep, deep, deep on the doctrine of election, but I need to give you the basic principles of the doctrine of election. Here's what it is. It's the sovereign and eternal decree of God in love to extend grace and salvation and adoption and calling to a people according to the purpose of a will, his will and the praise of his glory. It's God in his heavenly and eternal home reaching into our earthly and temporary home and saying, this one for this, this one for this, this one for Abraham for this, Moses for this, you for this, you for this. It's God reaching down from heaven and literally choosing to pull up a people for himself to live in relationship with him and help the whole world knows who he is. Now, the definition that I just gave you is literally a summary of Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 12. That's where the apostle Paul for the New Testament church really unpacks this doctrine of election. I want to read it to you, and as we read it, if you have your Bibles, you might turn there, Ephesians chapter 1. As I read it to you, I'm going to pull out the words in the summary statement so you can understand where they came from. The sovereign and eternal decree of God in love to extend grace, salvation, adoption for his purpose, for his praise. Here's what Paul says to the church in Ephesus, verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who's blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Now we get into doctrine. For he chose us, you might circle those words, that's the sovereign choice of God. God decided. He chose us, not we chose him. He chose us in him before the creation of the world. There's eternal. God made up his mind before we were born. He chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. There is our purpose to be for God a people that can be close to him for eternity. In love. We said that in the summary statement. God did it all in love. He predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. To the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, verse 7 is kind of the, the mission of God through election. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sin in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. God chose us to live in relationship. And here's how he took sinful people and allowed them to live in relationship. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery. There's the mission that God is sending us on. He let us know what he's doing in the world and he's invited us to be a part of it. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reached their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. Under Christ. There is the reconciliation of the world to him. It's the same thing he asked Abraham to do. It's the same thing he asked Moses to do. Let the world know who I am so they can live in relationship with me. Verse 11, in him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will in order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. God chooses Christians to help the world see who he is so that they can be chosen to be Christians as well. Now listen, it's not the purpose of John chapter 15 to teach on the doctrine of election, but it is the backdrop of John 15, 16. So we gotta say something about it because Jesus clearly said, you didn't choose me, I chose you and I appointed you. You're like, okay, how, how does that work and what do we need to learn? Doctrine of election can be big and scary. It can lead to lots of conflict and controversy in a church. Let me give you three thoughts on election that I just want to try to unpack at a very high level to give you exactly what the Bible says and then to give you some, just some comfort as you leave today. Um, the doctrine of election first. Three thoughts on election. Doctrine of election um, always makes a lot of sense in the rearview mirror. 
Like, there's no doubt Abraham and Moses were elected. They didn't, like, God chose them, period. No one would debate that. Um, David, God chose him. No one would debate that. Um, the prophets, God chose them. They didn't sign up for it. They weren't looking for it. The doctrine of election in the rearview mirror always makes sense. The doctrine of election can always bring fear, though, to the long-term future. Because we wonder who's elected, who's not, what if they're not? Who's elected, who's not, what if they're not? So the doctrine of election um, can bring fear to the long-term future. But the doctrine of election, letter C, it, like, it always takes trust in the heart of God like in our present spiritual state. So a couple things about the doctrine of election. Always makes sense in the rearview mirror. No one would read the Bible and not think that Abraham and Moses, David, the prophets, were elected by God. Nobody would read the Bible and not think that the disciples were elected by Jesus to come be his followers. None of us who have humility would say that we found God as much as we would say that God found us. We would not say, I went looking for him and finally found him. We would say, God put something in my heart which led to a revelation of who he was. And I responded and said yes to his invitation. I did not ask God to date me. He asked me to date him. That, like in humility, that's what we would say if we understood our relationship with God. So in the rearview mirror, always makes perfect sense. In the like, short-term future, we worry about husband, wife, uh, mom and dad. Kids, grandkids, um, neighbors, coworkers. We worry about those who don't appear to have been elected yet. And we worry, like, what if, what if they never are? Is that fair? What if they never are, and is that fair? All I can tell you about letter B is you have to find comfort in letter C. In the doctrine of election, we have to place our trust in the heart of God. See, let me, let, me, let me give you two things that are true. Um, those who have not been elected yet, who we worry about, we know far less about those being elected than we do about the one who is electing. And when it comes to this doctrine of election and the fear surrounding the doctrine of election, we got to stop asking questions about who gets elected. We've got to begin learning truth about who is electing. And we've got to say, I trust that guy. I trust his heart. I trust what John 3.16 says, that he loves the entire world. I trust what 2 Timothy 2 says, that he desires all men to be saved. Like, I'm not sure who all is going to be elected, but I know this. I know the one who's electing, and I trust him. I trust him. You say, Christian, what's the most confusing thing to you about the doctrine of election? If you have one question that you could ask Jesus about the doctrine of election, it would be what? Here's my question. Why would you choose me? I wouldn't ask him about anyone else. I'm the only one I know doesn't deserve it, and I'd just like to know why he would display the heart towards me that he has displayed. So the doctrine of election is very clear, looking backwards. It's very safe, looking upwards. It's a little scary looking around our inner circle, but that's where we've got to train our eyes on the word and think, I can't know everything about everyone being elected, but I can learn a lot about the one electing, and I feel safe with him, Amen. I love the heart of some of the church fathers and the reformers and the great pastors of history. Charles Spurgeon, who believed in the doctrine of election but was one of the greatest evangelists to live the last hundred years, uh, used to say this. He said, I pray God save the elect and then elect some more. That's a great prayer. God, I pray that you will save the elect and then elect some more. For God so loved the world. 
God desires all men to be saved. I pray for God to save the elect and then elect some more. And instead of spending time worrying about who is and who is not elected, I want to spend more time getting to know the one who's electing because that is the only place my heart truly has comfort. But we are elected not just into relationship. We're elected into mission. In verse 9 of Ephesians 1, we read that God made known the mystery to those he elected. What's the mystery? God not only chose us, he chose to give us wisdom. And he chose to give us understanding to understand and carry out his mission. So he didn't just choose us to be with him. He chose us to be on mission for him. The word in John 15, 16 is the word appointed. You didn't choose me. I chose you and I appointed you. It's the Greek word titimi. And it literally means to set apart for special serving. So Jesus says, I chose you because I love you, but I chose you because I want to use you spiritually. Listen to what verse 16 says in its fullness. You did not choose me, but I chose you. We know what that means now, doctrine of election. And I appointed you, tied to me. I chose you, but, but I've got a special role for you. I appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. In preaching on this text, Several years ago, John Piper said this, bearing fruit means loving other people. It means letting the love we constantly receive from Christ as we abide in him flow through us and out to others for their benefit. So the love of God does not stop when it gets to us. The love of God lives in its fullness when it flows through us. Jesus would say in verse 17, this is my command. Men just love each other. Saved people, Love and serve other saved people. In a sermon on John 13, John Piper would talk about how Christians are supposed to serve other Christians in the context of the local church. It's interesting in the New Testament, the local church, like what we are, one group on mission together, um, is called a body that has to work together to work properly. It's called a household of faith, like we're one big family. It's actually called a family. Like the local church works when everyone believes they're in this family and they're supposed to serve each other. Piper would say, when you look at Jesus in John chapter 13, it appears here's the way we're supposed to serve each other. Letter A, he says, we're gonna lay aside all of our status and we're just gonna serve God by serving the people of God. That's what Jesus did, it was pretty simple. He was the rabbi, he was the master, he was the teacher, but he took off literally probably his rabbi garments, his prayer shawl. He laid aside his status and he just started serving. And he started serving letter B by just being willing to meet the most basic of needs in the moment to help people rest in who Jesus is. So we serve God by serving the people of God. How do we do that? We lay aside our status and we see everyone in the building as our spiritual brothers and sisters who we're supposed to serve. You say, what do we do? I guess whatever needs to be done. The most basic things to just help people be able to rest for a moment in Jesus. There are some people today serving God by serving you in our nursery and preschool area. There are some parents in the room who have not spent much time this week disconnected from a little something that seems to suck all the life out of you, some of you literally at the age that they're at. And because somebody is serving God by serving them, you're in here today just resting in Jesus. You're just learning. You're pressing into who God is. There are others of you today, man, early this week, we had coffee every day at prayer this morning. It was hot and ready by 5.30 a.m., Somebody serve God by serving people, by meeting the basic need. 
Somebody got the bright idea that it would be better to pray after caffeine than before caffeine. That's probably spiritual wisdom right there. I don't know that it's in the book of Proverbs, but it might be better to pray after caffeine than before caffeine. Just a basic need. But somebody served God by serving people. Somebody in the parking lot today on a cold day, man, it's cold outside and it was cold in the atrium today. Somebody stood outside and directed traffic just to try to make it easier for people to get in and get out. We had a cool conversation in our elders meeting this week because one of our, one of our parking guys who serves God who, by serving people said, man, we do not have enough handicapped spots at our church. This week I had to park a handicapped person all the way at the back of their property and I went and I walked them all the way in. Let's figure out how to fix that. But what he said is like, I'll serve God by serving them until we can fix that. So we serve God by serving others. Here's what's true. Question, assumption. You're a follower of Jesus? Yeah. Oh, so you serve God by serving God's people at your local church. The answer to that is supposed to be, of course. That's how it works. We're a family. We're a household of faith. We're a body. Inside your bulletin, I've given you an opportunity to take a next step. I hate teaching truth without giving those of you an opportunity who the Holy Spirit in your heart is saying, hey, you need to start doing that without giving you an easy opportunity. Always trying to create on-ramps to obedience. So in your bulletins, this little journey serving opportunities, if you don't have a bulletin, but you have a smartphone, you can buzz that QR code on the screens. And it'll just give you the basic first steps between now and Easter to start thriving spiritually by serving God, by serving his people in your local church. A couple areas you can serve. The, the bolded areas probably tell you less than the little areas underneath them, adult ministry, creative arts, events, environments, facilities, family ministry, guest services. What percentage of people in the local church do you think according to Jesus are supposed to be serving other people in the local church? Anybody want to guess? It's 100 yeah. This command I give you. Love one another. Lay down your life. You want me to die for someone? No, 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 no. I just want you to wash each other's feet. Lay down your status. Find the first need. And meet that basic need so someone can stay close to Jesus or draw closer to Jesus. As we end our service today, you're going to have an opportunity to reflect on some questions that scroll on the screen. But my heart for you, the first reflection is pretty easy. Your follower of Jesus? Yeah. Serving God by serving his people? Well, not yet, but I will in 2023. Because that's what Christians do. I'm going to challenge you if you haven't picked your spot yet. Just pick one or two of these areas. Check the box. Take it to the Connection Center when you're done or throw it in the box in the vestibules as you leave. Be obedient to an area that will allow you to thrive. Anyone who serves in the church will tell you this. They usually get more from serving than they give in serving. It helps you thrive spiritually. What has God said to you today? What do you need to do to respond in a year of come and follow? You need to know we don't find any followers of Jesus in this book who did not serve Jesus' church. In a year of come and follow, we serve God by serving his people through his church. God, speak to us through your Holy Spirit in this moment of just prayerful meditation, not only about what we need to hear, but what we need to do to take our on-ramp to obedience. Use this moment and this service in this year to allow some people to begin to have their heart beat for Jesus in this area of serving. God, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.